Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. Finding a home, a place that feels safe and secure, a place where you know you can stay long term, is getting increasingly harder here in California. Today on our show, we've got two stories for you. One is about a parent struggling to hold on to her home so her kids can have a safe place to live. Mom, is he going to kick us to the street? Mom, what's going to happen? Are we not going to have a home? It is horrible for a seven-year-old. And what it means for parents to build a housing community from scratch for their adult children with disabilities. This is my life's work, and when you have children, that look at the world differently. You get an insight into life and death and history and spirituality and wisdom that you wouldn't get otherwise. The pandemic has been particularly hard on renters. There's been a lot of news about this recently, about people getting kicked out of their homes and about the end of the statewide eviction moratorium this fall. But it's not just evictions. Some renters are also facing another challenge, harassment from their landlords. As some tenants struggle to pay rent, some say they are being harassed by their landlords and tenant advocates are fed up. They are asking L.A. City Council now to pass an anti-harassment ordinance. Our I-team's Randy Mack joins us live. A growing number of California cities are moving to ban landlords from using aggressive practices to try to push out their tenants. Reporter Corey Suzuki has a story for us now about one renter's experience with her landlord and what it cost her. Sometimes Dabia Binocli dreams about Italy. There's a painting on the wall of her tiny kitchen. It shows green trees, red-tiled roofs, cobblestone streets. It's a peaceful, how to say that, peaceful river between two Two beautiful buildings, two beautiful sides of buildings. And I think life is less stressful over there because there's a lot of flowers. <laughs> I'm standing with Davia in her kitchen. As we're talking, one of her kids drops a bowl of popcorn, scattering kernels across the floor. Peaceful over there, even though, you know, it's, it's hard for some people, like for me right now. But, um, you know, life is never easy anyways. Excuse me, what you doing? Davia and her kids are happy here. They live together in this small apartment in Walnut Creek, a Bay Area suburb. Leah is seven. She likes when they watch movies together. 
Alina is two. She likes when they go to Trader Joe's. But like a lot of people, Dabia has really struggled to get by during the pandemic. Two years ago, she got divorced. And I trusted him, so he did a lot of bad, bad mistakes and affect his own long term. You know, it's not something you fix in a month. She was a preschool teacher at the time, but the school said she couldn't bring Alina, her baby, to work. She didn't have anyone who could take care of her then, so she started driving for Uber and DoorDash with Alina in the back seat. That was when Dabia's dad stepped in. He lives back in Algeria with Dabia's sister and brother and a lot of her family, and he helped her lease a car so she could work for Uber and DoorDash. He helped a lot of people. I'm not saying that because he's my dad, but he was the best dad in the world. Then COVID hit, and it was even harder to find work. Altogether, with unemployment and her delivery jobs, Dabia says she was making a little over $2,000 a month, and half of that was going to pay her rent. It was a really stressful year juggling all of that. But Dabia did have one really big thing to look forward to, the summer of 2021. That's when she was planning this big surprise trip to visit her parents back home in Algeria. It's a plan of five years. I'm talking about a plan of five years. We've been through a lot before these five years, you know, divorce with their dad and a lot of struggle, losing jobs during COVID. Dabia and her brother had it all planned out. Dabia's daughter was going to be on break, spring was turning to summer, and COVID restrictions were easing. Dabia was so excited. She couldn't wait to see her mom and dad again. And that's when their new difficult landlord arrived, a local real estate investor named Stephen Pinza. I asked Dabia to read one of the letters they got from him. As you might know, there are significant safety items that we need to take care in your unit while we wish their repairs were not necessary or could be done without you moving out. It is not possible. I also talked to two other tenants who said they got the same letters. The new landlord was ordering them to move out. He said there were significant safety issues with 11 apartments, and those tenants had until July 31st to leave. So here's the bedroom, and uh, pretty clean, as you can see, you know. The walls are fine, nothing is falling, there's no ceilings falling. The closet is pretty clean, it's just not a great... I asked Abia to show me around her apartment. There weren't any safety issues I could see. And then the landlord started doing other things. He refused to take their rent payment for July. He had workers take away the tables and chairs they used to have barbecues in the courtyard. He started doing loud construction work frequently. And he told them anything else they left outside, like toys and bikes, would be thrown away. Leah Simon Weisberg is an attorney with the tenants group ACE, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. She says what Dobby and her neighbors are dealing with isn't unusual, even if it does prey on struggling renters and their families. Part of Stephen Pinza's business model is to buy properties with long-term tenants and that may have some minor, minor delayed maintenance, but he tends to just make money by pushing people out. I tried to get in touch with Stephen Pinza. I called and emailed his office and knocked on his door. He hasn't gotten back to me. He cleans them up a bit, you know, meaning like he paints it, does some minor repairs, and then he puts a much higher Um, You know, he charges way more rent. A lot of Dabia's neighbors did end up leaving. But Dabia and a couple other tenants didn't have anywhere to go. They weren't going to leave at the end of July. They couldn't. Instead, they were going to stay and wait for the landlord to take them to court. Walnut Creek doesn't define landlord harassment. But actions like refusing rent payments and intimidation fit the legal definition of harassment in other cities. And Dabia and the other tenants living in her building aren't the only ones dealing with this. Reports of landlords harassing their tenants have spiked during the pandemic in the Bay Area and in other parts of California. 
a number of cities have moved to address it. Los Angeles, Oakland, and Richmond have all passed stronger anti-harassment protections meant to deter this kind of behavior. But Dabia had something else at stake, this chance to spend time with her family. They only had a small window when Leo was out of school, but it was getting closer and closer to July 31st, the day they were supposed to move out. And she was really worried about what might happen if they were gone for too long. And when I saw this letter, I was really afraid that if we go, he comes and literally, you know, throw our stuff to the street because he was so harassing, he was so rude that we would expect anything from him. So I, I just went ahead and canceled my trip. I didn't get those tickets. I didn't go. I didn't know what this guy was capable of. A month later, she got a call from her family. Beginning of July, I talked to my family, and uh, here's the, the shock. Both of them get COVID, mom and dad. My dad is 68. My mom is 58 years old. They're 10 years apart, but they, both of them get sick to the point they couldn't breathe. It was really bad at first, but soon Dabia got some good news. Her mom was doing better. She didn't need oxygen anymore. And her dad was being moved to the hospital. Her family said he was getting better too. In the morning, I woke up at 6 a.m. and put in the pressure cooker. I was so excited. It was July 31st, the day they were supposed to hand in their keys. But Dabia had bigger things to worry about. Today was her daughter's birthday party. So I made this a lot, like enough for 25 people, couscous with chicken and vegetables. I wake up at 6 a.m. and throw everything in the pot. As soon as I finish and I cover it, my daughter woke up, it was like 8.15, and she's like, Mom, get ready. She was excited, her birthday. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's get ready. And um, we were heading to the bathroom. I heard the phone calling. She picked up the phone. It was her sister. That the way she's talking is wrong. And she has the background of crying, like I can hear some cry. And she say, we tried everything. Sorry, sister, we're here with you. We love you. And I was quite in shock. I, I don't know. I know what happened after that. Dobby's family had been hiding the truth. Her father wasn't getting better, but they knew she had a lot to worry about already and they didn't want to add something else. So it was a shock when Dobby's sister called to tell her that their father had died. You know, a lot of people came to my apartment, my neighbors that time, they're all from my country, three or four of them. And they heard me like, oh, I don't even know where I was. I was just crying, I don't even know. Maybe it was screaming too loud. I don't know, because quite a shock for me. Sitting next to me on a park bench near her building, Dabia squeezes her water bottle in both hands, screws it and unscrews it as she talks. And, uh, and I remember I took my phone and I'm always on, on the end, he could say, kisses for my lovely grandkids. He loves my, my kids, of course, and kisses for my two princesses, for my two cuties, things, you know, in the end, and his messages in, in French. He always writes to me in French. Davia's landlord didn't force her to cancel the trip. But the stress of balancing multiple jobs, taking care of her kids, and dealing with the harassment, it was too much. So she made the choice not to go. And now, on the wall of her tiny kitchen, there's another picture frame. Inside is a photo of her dad. Still, things are a little more stable right now. The day I stopped by Davia's apartment, she tells me she was finally able to find a job at a preschool that lets her bring Alina along. It is a relief because I can have her with me, can have the baby with me. I really love it. We feel like we know each other for years and we literally just started, you know. The state and county eviction moratoriums expired at the end of September. And Walnut Creek doesn't have any local eviction protections like cities in Alameda County. But Dabia said she's ready 
for whatever comes next. I am ready. Whatever he wants to take me, he'll, he'll go. Which, whatever path he'll work, if he becomes human and, you know, come and talk to us and give us some more time and we'll work it out. We'll leave one day when we can, when we have, you know, enough money, which it's already my plan. I want to move. I want to have a two bedrooms. I want to have big space. I want to have a backyard for my kids. I do want to have all that, but I cannot afford it right now and explain to him. Sure. The last two years have taken a lot from Davia, but she still has her home. And for Leah and Alina, Davia says that's the most important thing. She hopes they'll be able to move out soon too, to find that bigger place with the backyard, to bring her mom to the US so she can have family around and help with the kids. And for now, she dreams about that river in Italy. For The California Report, I'm Corey Suzuki in Walnut Creek. Corey Suzuki is a student at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And now to another story about housing. This one is about parents building a safe and intentional place for their children to live. Adult children who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. If you're a parent, you know that fear of dying before your child is old enough to care for themselves. But what if your child will always need some extra care, even as an adult? There's that clawing specter, that haunting, grinding specter in your mind. What's going to happen when you pass? What if there aren't other family members to help? What if other family members can't or won't step up? Polly Stryker has a story for us now about a group of parents in San Mateo County who are in the process of creating what they hope will be a self-sustaining community for their adult children. On a recent Saturday, a group of families pulled up to a 20-acre parcel of land on the coast in foggy Half Moon Bay, about 30 minutes south of San Francisco. There's a lot going on here you only see when you get out of the car and start walking around. This farm is part of the Big Wave Project. There are rows of crops here, strawberries, peas, lettuce, squash, and lavender. There are chickens. And there's a construction site, giant mounds of dirt and graders leveling a foundation for apartments. This is where I meet a man in his mid-30s who will soon be able to live independently in a community of his peers for the first time. I am Matthew Cadigan Hearn. Matthew's six foot three, wavy brown hair, black-rimmed glasses. He's also just 11 months older than his brother Daniel, one of the family members who keeps a close eye on him. Asperger's was the term that, um, well, and that's what Matt was diagnosed with until they kind of changed it to being an autistic spectrum. The two of them have been a part of the Big Wave project for over a decade, but it all began over two decades ago. Get down on the ground. An evolving concept that started with Special Olympics basketball. The teams practice here on this grassy field near the farm. It's the brainchild of a local dad with a differently abled daughter. So when I say rebound, rebound! Standing over six feet tall, silver hair under his baseball cap, Jeff Peck's got an easy but direct way of coaching. At that point, you're either going to pass, shoot or dribble. dribble or shoot, right. But always protect the ball. 
it doesn't really matter who's on what team here. This is more of a practice than a game today. It's all about helping everyone get a chance to hold the ball, to pass the ball, to aim for the backboard, and generally have a good time with each other. Some of them can't catch the ball thrown at full speed, and some can. That's Daniel. He coaches the Cougars, one of four teams at Big Wave. His brother Matthew floats through the teams and is thinking about becoming a coach himself. Matt is the big man on the court. He is there uh, to get rebounds and blocks and hopefully throw the ball back up if he catches a rebound. Due to my height, I was either power forward or center. So I was having to get in the scrimmage and be a bit of a punching bag at times. Two decades ago, there were seven basketball players. Now there are around 60 on the four teams. It's really become a tight community, says Jeff Peck. They come back year after year after year. They started when they were eight, some of them were 30. Some of them started when they were 20, now they're in their 40s, but they keep coming back because that's the community which they created. This is what led the parents to wonder a number of years back. What if they could make that feeling of connection into something bigger, something more permanent? A home for their children to live, work, and be their most authentic selves, even after their parents die. Uh, The biggest fear of parents with children who have special needs, most parents, is what's going to happen to my child when I'm too sick to take care of them or when I die? There's that clawing specter, that haunting, grinding specter in your mind, what's going to happen when you pass? Daniel's familiar with this fear. Matthew lives now with an uncle in South San Francisco, but those who don't have family willing to step up can face grim alternatives, like group homes that can feel institutional. Daniel says people like his brother shouldn't be warehoused, but rather embraced by the community. What is schizophrenia? What is autism? What is Down syndrome? Like, what, what are these things that, you know, affect the community and shouldn't be, like, hidden away, you know? Something that's so public outfacing and accepting and, you know, welcoming is just so awesome. Big Wave, Daniel says, has given Matthew an opportunity to explore and grow as a member of a community. Matt has his own social circle here and people asking for advice and him really just holding his own audience when talking to a group of people. It was cool to walk into a situation where it's not, oh, this is Daniel's brother. It's like, I know I'm Matt's brother. This is his space. Even if Matthew's not too keen on farming. He does not like to get his hands dirty. He doesn't mind organizing. So he'll he'll organize the gloves or come up with a process or, you know. Trying to avoid getting two left gloves or two right gloves, which could be exceedingly awkward if you're trying to do farm work. Big Wave meets its people where they are. It's okay here for Matthew to work out issues he's struggling with without being condemned or dismissed or patronized. He started a bad habit of, like, slapping his forehead. Like, when we're playing basketball, he'll, like, miss a shot and get really angry and, you know, do the stupid, stupid, stupid thing. And I'm like, where did that come from? Like, why are you doing that? Daniel says he's grateful to Matthew for teaching him more empathy and patience. But it's also important, Daniel says, that Matthew have a space where he gets to be the big brother. Matthew has training as a peer counselor, something he uses with this community. You know, if someone's having a bad day, he'll go over and chat with them. He'll usually take them aside or, you know, have that kind of conversation to see how they're doing, see how they're feeling, talk it out, help them kind of process what they're going through. The brothers share a lot of history, much of it traumatic. Their mother died of brain cancer in 2009. 
Not that I'm a big religion person, but I do like to think some part of us that makes us unique does move on when our time here passes. Daniel guides Matthew through the grief. He still feels that same kind of guilt of like, oh, I wish I could have like been more supportive of things and I just have to inf- reinforce that. No, 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 I feel the same way. You know, it, it's totally fine that you feel that way and that just means that you're a good person. After their mother died, their father plunged into a serious battle with drinking and opioid addiction. He was eventually institutionalized and then he died. And Matthew has similar guilt to my mom as my dad of like, oh, maybe I could have talked about it drinking. We did the best we could. And so it's, it's stuff we talk about, you know, of just guilt is there and it's okay to be guilty. Big Wave has been a critical solace and support to the brothers. And Daniel says he hopes to move into one of the caretaker apartments imagined for Big Wave Farm to help his brother transition to independent living. He's looking forward to helping Matthew do things like cook for himself. He likes a lot of different types of food, and it's like once he has his own kitchen space to figure it out, like, oh, all right, let's go, let's go make sushi, you know, like, uh, let's make ramen, let's, you know, show him how to make noodles from scratch. Creating an intentional community for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities is no small feat. Founder and CEO Jeff Peck did well for himself as a contractor and bought this land back in 1999. But it's taken numerous hearings and environmental reviews and permit applications to get to the point where Big Wave could break ground. The green light finally came during the pandemic. Now 68 years old, Peck knows he's got a limited window of time to establish something that can outlast him and the other original parents. Something that will be financially sustainable. All of the revenue from this commercial assets go to keep the operating costs low, to make this a better community. A core group of families paid about $60,000 each for their adult child to have a place at Big Wave, although costs have risen with construction prices and county requirements. Not only do you want your child to be safe, but you want your child to have opportunity, a community. You want them to have a full life. In addition to the 57 apartments, there'll be office space for rent, a culinary school, a martial arts academy, and a cafe, which will be overseen by the folks who run Sam's Chowder House nearby. Their parents, too, with a child who will live at Big Wave. The model's kind of like a co-op with a board to run it all that has residents on it. Peck knows this is a big, expensive experiment. This is my life's work, and when you have children that look at the world differently, you get an insight into life and death and history and spirituality and wisdom that you wouldn't get otherwise. I asked Matthew Cadigan Hearn what he hopes for as he gets ready to move into Big Wave once construction's finished, possibly by the summer. I am just hoping I can be a part of a community that accepts me for what I am and not having me be something I am not. That's Big Wave, a community where Matthew and his peers get to control their own destinies together. For The California Report, I'm Polly Stryker in Half Moon Bay. We've got a sneak preview for you of next week's California Report magazine. 
These days, all kinds of businesses, from Uber to Instacart to janitorial companies, argue that the gig economy is a great new model for work. Which is independent work or so-called gig work. Helping people start their own businesses and they were going to grow and thrive. Congratulations, you've just become entrepreneurs. You are now independent contractors. But some workers here in California are pushing back, questioning just how independent they really are as contractors. Instead of making it big, some of them are drowning in debt, unable to earn a decent living. Reporter Chrissy Clark is the host of the documentary podcast from Marketplace called The Uncertain Hour. And she's got a whole new series about work and how it's changing. Here on our show next week, she'll introduce us to Jerry Vasquez. My name is Gerardo Vasquez. Everyone calls him Jerry. Ever since I was a little kid, one of my second or third grade teachers started calling me Jerry. And then everybody started calling me Jerry, so I just stuck. How do you feel about Jerry? I like it. I like my Spanish name, too. It's pretty cool. I I actually love it, my Spanish name. But you can call me either one. It's it's all good. That's the kind of guy Jerry is. A call-me-whatever-you-want-avoid-conflict kind of guy. And in 2007, Jerry started a new job. He was in his mid-30s, living with his parents in San Bernardino. It's a sprawling county east of L.A. where orange groves have given way to freeways and Amazon warehouses. The job was with a commercial cleaning company called JanPro. Jerry became a janitor. I have my uh, mop bucket. He still has some of his original equipment. Still the original broom. And Jerry still remembers one of his first nights on the job, cleaning this big daycare. He was eager to prove himself. Put the JanPro shirt on. Blue with white letters. The badge. Loaded up on Rockstar energy drinks. Ready to go. I can do any hard work. I think any human can do anything. The daycare had about 100 kids, many still in diapers or potty training. You come in, you open the door, you turn off the alarm, you turn on the lights. When he headed to the bathrooms to start cleaning, he had no idea what he was in for. There's like a bomb of poop all over the place, being all over the place. And garbage bags full of diapers, so heavy you had to be careful getting them out of the trash bins. Because if you try picking up the plastic bag with all the diapers, the bottom's going to rip. Plus dried food and milk and juice caked onto the floor. All this stuff, it doesn't come off easily. Mopping for hours just wears down your knuckles. Your hands start to uh, hurt. And if I move my fingers like this, they'll pop by themselves. I can hear. That didn't used to happen. No, not that from the mopping. Of course, there are lots of hard jobs in the world. Jobs that make your body ache, that have long hours. But there was something about Jerry's job that made it that much harder to bear. Something he discovered when he looked closely at his first check. He was making... Maybe five bucks an hour. Five bucks an hour. Below federal minimum wage and way below the minimum wage where he lives in California, which was seven fifty an hour back then. You worked all these hours, it's very hard work, and at the end of the day, you're getting chump change. You're basically just barely making it. Tune 
Tune in next week to hear more of Jerry's story. We'll explore how is it that a worker in America in the 21st century in California, the state with the biggest economy, could get stuck in a job making less than the minimum wage and what Jerry and others are doing about it. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. We had editing help this week from Lisa Morehouse, Rachel Myro, Ethan Lindsay, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Sasha Coca. You can follow me on Twitter at KQED Sasha Coca. And you can always download our podcast if you've missed any of our shows. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.